G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is the truth of it. The first one for 2022, the first one for the season, and I'm almost apologetic. It's been such a very long break, and people have been asking me when we're coming back. But here we are. Um, I was on long service leave. I got COVID. We had a bunch of stuff go on, but we're finally here, and the programs will be regular from this point forward. Today, the first one is this whole uh, Christian schools controversy. Are they expelling gay and trans kids or aren't they? What are we to make of it? I'm going to clear that up. Secondly, COVID's, uh, COVID trucks and convoys. It's a bit of a tongue twister. The movements against vaccine mandates, especially Canada, perhaps a little bit of Australia. Some of my views on that issue. But first of all, expelling gay students. The truth about the Christian schools controversy. You've heard this mantra, no doubt, in recent weeks all over the place about schools apparently having the power to or apparently wanting to expel gay or trans students or discipline them or whatever. It's been over the media. It's been a live issue in politics. Left-wing groups continue to say it right up until this very second. I've been off the air, but it's time to uh, address some of this and, and hopefully debunk it where it needs to be debunked. It's actually something that started quite a long time ago. Um, people need to send their minds back a couple of years when a journalist threw a microphone in the prime minister's face and asked him whether he thought that schools, Christian schools, should be able to expel gay or trans students. And of course, he very quickly said, of course, I don't think they should be able to. And they said, well, well do you know that there is a law on the books that allows that very thing to happen? And of course, he fell into the trap and he made the commitment to uh, overhaul that law, indeed to remove it, to reform it. Um, and that was a mistake, as we shall see. The law in question is Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act. I'm going to turn to it in a moment. Just remember what it's called for now. That is the law they're coming for. That's the law that allegedly allows this to happen. Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act. First, however, you're going to recall that this has come back into the uh, fore, into the public debate, just in recent weeks because of the City Point Christian College controversy, which brought the whole issue back. Um, that school revised at the beginning of 2022 its contract of enrolment and the contract was to be signed by parents and students to agree to its standards and its code of conduct ahead of the 2022 school year. I want to read you a section from it, the section that principally started off this controversy, understanding that this is very much like many of the other sections that include statements of faith, beliefs about these things. So it's not that unusual, but it basically says the parents agree to support the college's efforts to ensure that, and it goes through saying support the efforts to uh, uh, run the college in accordance with its religious doctrines, tenets and beliefs, uh, its religious ethos, also to commit to um, uh, uh, encourage the student to grow in faith in Christ Jesus and develop as a Christian disciple according to the college's mission statement. Good stuff like this. Then it says this, in accordance with the Declaration of Faith, the college believes that, and this is part of a much bigger statement, uh, most of it was pre-existing, the college believes that A, God created human beings as biological males, boys, or biological females, girls. That's Matthew 19.4, Mark 10.6 of the references. B, these two distinct and complementary genders or biological sexes together reflect the image and nature of God. That could put in Genesis 1.27 there. C, the Bible ties gender identity to biological sex. There is Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.22-24, and does not make a distinction between gender and biological sex. It's all true. Accordingly, the college believes that by creating each person, God in his divine love and wisdom, gifted them their gender as male or female, the college therefore acknowledges the biological sex of a person as recognized at their birth and requires practices consistent with that sex. Whilst each student is individually valued and equally encouraged to pursue opportunities in both academic and co-curricular activities, we agree that where distinctions are made between male and female, inclusive of, but not limited to, for example, uniforms, presentation, terminology, use of facilities and amenities, participation in sporting events and accommodation, such distinctions will be applied on the basis of an individual's biological sex. 
Welcome to classic Christian doctrine. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the Bible. There's nothing untoward in that statement. There is nothing untrue in that statement. There's nothing in that statement about which a serious Christian could say anything other than amen. It's true. It's the truth. Um, but I found even among those who really believe that in their heart of hearts, uh, they sort of sat on the fence, some of them, and sort of pontificated about the wording of this. Con- was the timing right? Was it worded well? Was the nuance perfect? And all this other such quibbles, as if that's really the issue. That is not the issue. The issue is that activists who started this whole saga off a few years ago, in which the Prime Minister fell hook, line and sinker, they want to finish the job. They've been waiting for a controversy. They've been waiting for an opportunity to push their little agenda to fatally undermine Christian schooling. And they've been waiting, therefore, for a chance to repeal Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act, that law that I referred to before. So let's look at that law and explain it. The law allegedly means religious schools are expelling gay and trans kids. Here is what it says, section 38.3. It says nothing in section 21, which is a section that prohibits discrimination, okay? So nothing in that section renders it unlawful for a person to discriminate against a person on the ground of the other person's sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy, in connection with the provision of education or training by an educational institution that is conducted in accordance with the doctrines, tenets, beliefs or teachings of a particular religion or creed, If the first mentioned person so discriminates in good faith in order to avoid injury to the religious susceptibilities of adherents of that religion or creed. It's a mouthful, but if you followed me closely, you see the issue. In theory, it looks as though a religious school could expel a student on the basis of an attribute like sexual orientation mentioned there, gender identity mentioned there, in order to, I quote from the section, in order to avoid injury to the religious susceptibilities of adherents of their religion or creed, which is patronizing wording as if they're special flowers that are susceptible. But anyway, let's put that to one side. Um, The section appears to give that right. And indeed, in theory, I guess it does. But here's the truth about why it's there. And here's the truth about how it's used. The truth is no school simply expels a gay or trans student because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. No school wants to. Uh, No, that is not part of any um, uh, religious ethos or Christian ethos at one of these schools. Uh, Nobody does that. I've talked to the movements. I know how they operate. This is not what they do. The section exists for quite a different reason. And the devil really is in the detail. It exists to protect schools, rather, who have codes of conduct just like the one I just read out from City Point Christian College. It exists to protect schools who say that boys are boys and girls are girls and will be treated as such, or that the school believes that a marriage is between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others for life, or uh, schools that believe that queer theory is false and so forth. These are schools to which parents send their children to protect them from all of this gender bending stuff and this queer theory that's creeping in absolutely everywhere across the board in the education system because they want to, because they want to educate their children in accordance with their convictions and their beliefs or as nearly as possible. These schools need a way to uphold their ethos. They need a way to make it effective in their school community to make sure that their standards flow through. And it's not just schools that do this. It's religious institutions at large, but it's also political institutions, including political parties or lobbying and activist groups who say, hey, you know what, we're an LGBT lobby group. We want people who who are believing what we believe in. It's a very common thing for these sorts of organ, for political, religious organizations and so forth. It's not unusual. They need a way, these schools do, to ensure that these codes of conduct, these standards that they have are effective. And you say, well, how might they do that? 
Well, first of all, they might write the code of conduct in the first place, which says that boys go in the boys' toilets and girls go in the girls' toilets. Or that boys go in the boys' dorm on a school camp and girls go in the girls' dorm on school camp. Or they might ask students to attend the school formal uh, as a couple of, you know, with someone of the opposite sex or by themselves. Or they might ask that LGBT political activism not take place on the school grounds in school time. What happens, uh, however, when someone decides to undermine those principles? When they try to make trouble? When they try to deliberately break the rules? What is a school to do? To make the code of conduct effective, as I was saying, the school is going to ask them to please comply with the code of conduct. Then what's going to happen? Well, they are going to try and allege if they are gay or if they are trans or they have a, uh, an LGBT status, they will try and allege that they are being discriminated against on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, or their parents will argue that. And then the school has a very thorny legal problem, don't they? They can't do that. Ah, but they can because of Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act. It protects them in that moment. How do you see why the activists are going after this section? The loss of that section will mean that Christian schools cannot have any kind of Christian ethic that is effective in the school community on sex, sexuality or gender. Christian schooling would therefore be pretty much dead on this issue. This is important. If you have wisdom on these matters and you see how that these things, queer theory and the transgender stuff and all the huge rise in all of that, the effect that it's having on young people, the wave of young people that are being caught up in it, if you see the incredible harm, the dreadful outcomes from that gender deconstruction, from those LGBT sexualities, where can children be protected from this? Well, at a Christian school at the moment, hopefully, if the Christian school is a good one and they stand on their principle, and this is why the Prime Minister's involvement is so grievous, because he wrote to the leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, on the 1st of December 2021, offering him a deal. And that deal involved the deletion of this crucial Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act in exchange for Anthony Albanese supporting his religious discrimination bill, which was a, not a great bill anyway. Um, and here's an extract from that letter just to show you. He says, I write to you, this is Anthony Albanese, regarding the Religious Discrimination Bill 2021 and related bills. The government has sought to progress the bills on a non-partisan basis. My own advocacy on the bills has been confined to the merits of the bills. My dialogue with faith leaders has confirmed their preference for the bills to progress on a non-partisan basis. Uh, we didn't necessarily have that concern. Evidently, others did. I have sought to honour their request and seek your support to this end. To assist with this process and in keeping with my second reading speech, where I stated that there is no place in our education system for any form of discrimination against a student on the basis of their sexuality or gender identity, the government will move an amendment to remove the provision of the Sex Discrimination Act, which was included in 2013, which limited the protections provided under this act, etc. In other words, I'm saying, he's saying, I'm going to remove Section 38.3 if you'll vote with me in Parliament on the Religious Discrimination Bill. In other words, a bill that was a lame duck, but it was a political promise of the Prime Minister, so he felt the pressure to get it over the line, given away for what? The loss of this protection for Christian schools, which is so vital? This is crazy. Um, and when the religious discrimination bill came on for debate in Parliament, Anthony Albanese just tabled that letter in the Parliament and said, well, bring it on. Let's do it. Go. Because that suited some of the people's purposes in his party. Uh, and it was 
nearly a disaster. Five Liberal MPs broke rank. They crossed the floor to vote with the opposition leader 90 days out from an election, which is just incredible, to remove Section 38.3 of the Sex Discrimination Act and at the same time to pass the Religious Discrimination Bill. But the good news is that we were able to mobilise pretty quickly and there was enough members of the coalition in the Senate who agreed with us uh, that, uh, that, that, that some teamwork meant that the whole thing died in the water. Both the Religious Discrimination Bill went and the removal of Section 38.3 in the Sex Discrimination Act went. So that was preserved and that was totally worth it. It was totally, absolutely worth it. Ever since the Folau Clause was removed from the Religious Discrimination Bill, it's been pretty lame. There's a couple of things in there that, you know, might have been cool if we could get them over the line, but it was not worth this. And we were told that this deal did not exist. This deal was concealed. In fact, we were told point blank to the face it does not exist. So, you know, uh, there was a lot of lies told here and no one knew actually that it existed. It's not just us, it's just incredible behaviour uh, from the government and not something that I even expected. Um, you know, the fact is, however, that there were some good people in the Senate. And what they did was that they stood up and they drew the line and they stood firm. They stood up to the party. They stood up even to their prime minister. They said, we're not going to budge on this. This is too far. This bill has to go. You know, we need more of that kind of courage. And it's interesting how that kind of courage came up at the last minute. Uh, and as a result, things changed. You know, the advances that these activists continue to make always rely on the same thing. They rely on attacking someone or some institution and that person or institution then fails to stand firm. They rely on their targets to buckle, to fold, to relent, to compromise, to back down. And when these things come up, people so often freak, they panic, they're not ready for it, and they give in. Uh, and I'm not criticizing City Point directly here because I'm not, I don't have eyes on exactly what's going on there or, or how this all played out internally for them. But I have seen it in other contexts where you get school boards and principals come under the pressure of the moment and they panic and they worry about the PR and it overwhelms them and they fold and the activism moves forward. Or politicians, they get the microphone in their face, don't they? And it's scary and it's stressful and the journalist throws a question and they freak out. And what do they do? They fold and the activism moves forward. Or pastors see the hostility and they just want it to go away. So they shut their mouths or they fold. These moments are common. They're everywhere. And I think people sometimes say when these things come up, they say, oh, I hope they stand firm. Oh, I hope they do an Israel Folau and say, I won't be backing down. And yet it very seldom happens. I think these moments are what Ephesians 6 refers to as evil days. Days when the cause of evil knocks on our door. A spiritual attack comes against what is good and right. And it just happens that we're caught in the thick of it. it might, it's like, as Ephesians 6 says, like having a fiery dart shot at you. And sometimes it feels like we've been caught in a hail of arrows. And it really does. It can be stressful. And this might be on a big scale, like an institution in the media, as we've been talking about, or it might be you at work. It might be you in another context. It might be something smaller. But it's really interesting. I was just reflecting on this as I thought about this very issue. What's the instruction? The Apostle Paul says on that evil day, when the fiery dart comes your way, he says, stand firm. Stand firm in the evil day. And how different that is to what so often happens in these moments when people give in they pacify, they back down, they break. And so the cause of evil advances one more step. You saw the whole agenda behind this. There's very often a whole agenda behind it. The Apostle Paul was very wise to say, no, no, stand firm. That's what you need to do, Christian. That's the call on you in these moments. 
And he gives three tips. Well, there's several actually, but I want to isolate three tips as to how to do that for our own edification and for our own preparation for these things. Firstly, he says, deflect the fiery darts with the shield of faith. You say, what's he mean by that? Well, faith is trust in God. Faith in God that he will take care of it when we do stand firm and there are costs and consequences as there often will be. But before that, he says, start by belting yourself up with the belt of truth. Grasp what is true here and stand upon it. And if we do take the City Point contract issue, was that truth? Of course it was. Is it worth standing on? Of course it is. But there's also a response prescribed, and I've always reflected on this. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I have often found that the only offensive weapon in our armory is the Word of God. Everything else is defensive if you read this section with the armor of God. There is an attack. There is the Word of God. And you know, when you, you can explain the Word of God in reply. You can go on the offensive. You can say, no, this is what we stand for. Here it is. Spell it out. And you know something? Relying on this very section of Scripture, I've tried to do that a few times. And what I found time, again is, time and again is that it silences the opposition. People come to you sniffing for the weakness, whether they can make you compromise, whether they can get some victory. And when you look like you're standing firm and you're actually proclaiming truth in the other direction, they walk away. I saw it on q and I saw it on the project. I've seen it in debates and TV interviews. I've seen it in many contexts. We need to expect, however, uh, the important thing is we need to actually expect this sort of thing as well. It can't be a surprise to us. We need to expect these attacks. We need to expect our convictions to be exposed and scrutinized and hated by peers right up to the public square. And we need to expect people to come to us and accuse us and Satan is the great accuser, being unloving, being unJesus-like, being callous, being indifferent. Here's the fiery darts. Here's the hail of arrows. Here's the pressure. Well, Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Understand that that truth is none of those things. That truth is the most glorious thing in all the world to those who know it. And take up the shield of faith and trust God for your stand and for the outcome that may follow. He's got it. And respond where you can with the word of God. That's the formula. Daniel did it in Babylon. He knew he was going to face real trouble. He was ready for it. He was not surprised. So he decided that he would stand on truth. He trusted God for the outcome, not himself. He didn't manipulate it. He didn't make up his own life plan. He trusted God for what was next. And he declared the very words of God to the king. And I want to leave you with that. I'm actually about to close the section, but I'm not done. I want to leave you with that. I want you to understand that this sort of thing is normal. And it's normal even in our context today. Don't be surprised. Be ready. And it is really important for us all to be ready to stand firm. A simple instruction that it all boils down to and what an impact it can have on these causes and in these moments if we stand firm for what is right. Now I can close. Okay, uh, next up, I want to talk about COVID trucks and convoys, the movements against vaccine mandates. Uh, and I want to give my thoughts on that. Now, when it comes to this, and this is, look, like I always say, I mean, if I want to upset everyone, I talk about COVID. So, you know, prepare to be upset, perhaps. Uh, when it comes to this entire COVID business, however, and the constellation of issues that are related to it, like vaccines, like health measures, like censorship, like mandates, all that stuff, I've said the same thing since August 2020. The same thing. One, Beware of what is truly informed by healthcare, and some things are. And beware, be wise about what is truly informed by politics, and things are. And I include in politics the exploitation of fear for political advantage and power. I and 
plenty of others have suspected that, that the strong force in all of this is politics. Uh, and it is, I think, clearer now than it was then. Uh, lots of things were unknown then, lots of actions were taken then in light of huge guesswork. But right now I am seeing a lingering influence of the political, uh, the power, uh, and really stuff that doesn't make any sense in light of the healthcare. Now, I'm going to talk about one of the latest examples of this political advantage and power from the convoy in Canada. You might have heard of the Freedom Convoy, you might have heard of the Truckers Convoy, and all of the issues surrounding it. And that started when Canadian public health authorities announced vaccine mandates in late 2021, and that included truck drivers who crossed the border into Canada from the USA. Industry groups estimated that that was going to take about 16,000 truck drivers off the road, uh, and those truck drivers evidently got uh, quite upset by the mandates. And in response, by the 22nd of January 2022, the truckers had left uh, in a convoy to Ottawa, the Canadian capital. They were there by Saturday the 29th when the protest kicked off, and police said, and I don't know honestly how reliable this is, but they said that they counted about 3,000 trucks and 15,000 protesters in Ottawa itself that first weekend. Many of them remained for up to seven days. There were protests in other places as well. People turned out to cheer on the convoys in various places across the country as well. So it was a big movement. There was a disruption caused by the movement, uh, allegations of traffic obstruction, some business obstruction, nuisance like horns and things, logical outcome of having that many trucks and protesters camping up in a downtown area or near to it. But the biggest disruptions were the blockades, which are part of this. There was a blockade of the Ambassador's Bridge, over which a quarter of all trade between the USA and Canada passes. That's $323 million worth of goods every single day. The Freedom Convoy's GoFundMe page, before it was taken down, stated that their purpose was this. Our current, government, our current government is implementing rules and mandates that are destroying the foundation of our business industries and livelihoods. We're taking our fight to the doorsteps of our federal government and demanding that they cease all mandates against the people. The Freedom Convoy also did actively, repeatedly encourage people to be peaceful. I think that's important because you need to know where the movement itself at its core is coming from. There is no doubt that there were some moments uh, in the fringe elements uh, where there was some trouble, um, you know, maybe a swastika here, a scuffle there. By the way, there's pretty much no large protest movement, left or right, uh, even if they're peaceful, that doesn't have some ning-nong on the sideline who does the wrong thing. It's very common. Even here in Canberra, we had ours, and I'll mention it in a minute, but uh, in terms of protests we have here in Canberra, which is where I am right now, um, there, there, there is often something at the sideline that is not representative of the main movement. But overwhelmingly, it does seem like it was, in fact, peaceful, um, certainly up until the police decided to clear them on. So... What do governments normally do when something like this happens? Or indeed something maybe even worse than this happens? Well, you might draw a comparison or a parallel with strike and industrial action. They can be hugely disruptive. Governments ordinarily negotiate. They get an outcome, they resolve it peacefully. Or what about something far worse? You could take the BLM riots, which burned and looted entire cities across America for days. Very little was done in reply to those at all. In fact, that's how you got the Kyle Rittenhouse case, because there was just barely any police presence that wasn't being controlled. Uh, and people like him perhaps, you know, uh, perhaps uh, would reflect uh, better on this now. But at the time, that's what he decided to go in there and help out. But here's some comparative examples. And so you ask the question, well, all right, so let's look at this trucker's uh, convoy. Let's look at this blockade of the bridge. Uh, what should happen here? Would it be negotiation? Would it be let it run its course? Would it be something else? Well, the response was 
pretty widespread and mixed. There was a couple of reasonable things done. I mean, there was um, trucking associations made statements distancing themselves from the movement. Okay. Uh, there was a legal action from residents who were tired of the truck horns honking for hours on end. And there was a nuisance case. Fine. Nuisance is not lawful right across the Western world, as far as I know. Uh, and so on. Uh, there was also a court action from affected businesses to remove the blockade because they were losing a lot of money. Um, and again, okay, that's the sort of thing that you expect, especially when businesses are being impacted like that. But here's where it got crazy. It got crazy when the uh, government, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, invoked the Emergencies Act. Uh, this is an act which was invented for things on the level of counter-terrorism measures. It grants the federal government and law enforcement extraordinary powers for 30 days if there is a, quote, urgent and critical situation that, quote, seriously endangers the lives, health or safety of Canadians. Uh, there's a list of possible reasons that it can invoke it, and one is public order, but it must be a public order issue that is considered a serious threat to the security of Canada. This was done amidst a lot of rhetoric from him, which he didn't back up with really any evidence to say that these truckers were a fringe minority that were, you know, rhetoric around hateful and violent and swastika waving and unsafe and threatening. Um, and then what happens? Well, GoFundMe decides to shut down their fundraising page, refunding $9 million to donors. Then the Toronto Dominion Bank froze two personal bank accounts, which received $1.4 million Canadian dollars in donations towards the convoy. And the, there was a court order then to ratify their decision to freeze those accounts. Police have frozen 206 other bank accounts, plus dozens of cryptocurrency wallets, a whole bunch of Bitcoin. I don't know what the word is. Is it a Bitcoin addresses, URLs or something like that? But Bitcoins all, uh, all, all looked into. Then the alternative platform used by the convoy, which was Give, Send, Go. By the way, don't use GoFundMe, everyone. Don't ever use GoFundMe. They do this all the time. So they use Give, Send, Go instead. Now that was hacked. Uh, and names and personal details of the donors to the convoy were leaked. And those donors, many of them now say they face death threats, they face loss of their jobs. There seems to be at least one confirmed case of that. Closure of their businesses and other security issues. And a number of prominent people have been publicly outed in a cancel culture style effort to ruin their reputations. Meanwhile, the Attorney General of Ontario applied to have the $11 million of Give, Send, Go funds frozen because they were being used to support, the, uh, support criminal uh, offences uh, and the one that they identified was mischief uh, and a court granted the order so the money can't be distributed. It's very interesting to me. They had to get a police officer to go into that court and sign an affidavit to say, well, this is the offence that's being enabled by this money. And they chose mischief. I mean, you would think if there was really serious acts of violence and really serious criminality going on that really urgently needed to be stopped, they would come up with something better. They would have a police officer who could swear to something more than mischief. Uh, it really does make you wonder. Uh, and finally, uh, this all ended when there was an ugly police operation in Ottawa to, and I say ugly because I'm not, I don't know whose fault it all was, but anyway, as these things do, it, it, it didn't go brilliantly. Uh, to clear out the protesters, arrests were made, there was resistance in some places, and you would have seen the images, for example, most people of the woman trampled by the police horse and things like that, all very unfortunate. Um, and some sources say that this was the largest police operation in Canada's history. Now, this is pretty crazy stuff. This is uh, counter-terrorism powers, naming and shaming, cancel culture, Nazi rhetoric, armed police, stealing money. Uh, why did any of this have to happen? Why? Was it to meaningfully improve the healthcare of Canadians? Was this because healthcare? With 90% of truck drivers already vaccinated and vaccines not doing a whole lot to prevent infection, or was it to make a political point? Was it an authoritarian reflex? Honestly, I, I don't even think you need to argue the point. 
clearly it's more on point two than it is on point one. Here in Australia, we have a freedom convoy. We had a freedom convoy to Canberra, and it, uh, it involved more people, I think, than the Canadian one, potentially, if I've got the numbers right there from the police, and they might not be. But certainly at least tens of thousands made the long trip to Canberra. Um, and uh, it may have been bigger, but I'm not going to engage in the, in the guessing the crowd size game because it's just, it's just impossible. But whether Canada or Australia, all the other places that this has happened, it's quite true, it's totally true that the movements have involved real mixtures of people and a real cocktail of different views. But I just want to sort something out from all of this. And there's plenty of stuff, you know, if you really want to engage in the whole distancing yourself from that person and this tattoo and that thing that was said and their background, I'm not going to do that. What I am going to say is, well, what was the actual nucleus of the whole thing? What was the shared concern by everybody involved? And what was the stated concern of these movements, which were real, you know, amalgamations of things? Well, the shared thing was the concern about mandates. That is first, the requirement that people be vaccinated to keep their jobs. That is second, the requirement that people be vaccinated to cross borders or enter various establishments and businesses. Now, I wanna be very clear, I am not opposed to vaccines per se, ACL's not opposed to vaccines, nothing like that. I'm not opposed to legitimate health measures that are proportionate at all. I know there's a real pandemic. I know some stuff had to be done, especially in the early days, but I have to agree on this. I have to agree that the mandates are surely a bridge too far. Omicron now poses an extraordinarily low risk to the individual. That's obvious. That shouldn't even be controversial to say. Hospitals are doing okay, despite having received barely a penny of funding extra during the lockdown to cope with this moment. The evidence is now mounting, and it really is. And for those who follow the papers on this and follow the academic stuff that's coming out, you know this. The evidence is mounting that whilst vaccines do reduce symptoms, they barely make an impact on transmission. Um, even The Lancet is now publishing that data. <laughs> the Lancet isn't renowned for going against the zeitgeist or the flow on this. Um, not to mention over 90% of Australians are vaccinated. It's world leading. I mean, how can you do better than that? You barely can without, you know, insane levels of coercion, like actually rolling people's sleeves up and chucking it in. Um, uh, is it proportionate under these circumstances to pit someone's conscience against their duty to work and provide? Is it proportionate to create an unvaccinated underclass of people who don't have equal rights of movement or participation in society? Is it really proportionate? Does that really make sense? Is there no better way? Can we not test people? Can we not, you know, even if we don't admit that being unvaccinated is not risky to others, even if we don't admit that, can we not test people? Are they not widely available? Can it not be done at far greater cost and far greater burden, especially at this stage that we've got this far? Even in wars, we've provided for conscience. Every history book warns against the kinds of divisions that we're seeing here. It is wrong. I say it's wrong because conscience must be respected. I say it is wrong I say that conscience must be respected because I believe Romans chapter 2 verse 15, that God often convicts a person about right and wrong action through their conscience. Even when they don't fully understand why it might be right and wrong, it begins in the conscience and it is God's voice. In many contexts, he can and does use it. Romans 2.15 makes that clear. I may not share that person's conviction, but I'm very slow to put pressure on it if they're not using it as some you know, artifice or excuse for sin. And I say it is wrong, these mandates and so on, because a person must work. Conscience matters and they must work. 
Scripture says that the one who will not work, who refuses to work and provide for his family is, quote, worse than an unbeliever. How can we pit these things against each other when the risk is so small? When we can't even be sure, it's going to make a major difference. I say again, it is wrong. And I speak as someone who engages nearly daily with those who are affected. They are struggling. They haven't been able to get their conscience to a place where they can be vaccinated and they have suffered for it. Now, I also do acknowledge that there are many who are vaccinated because they believe that they were doing the right thing. I completely acknowledge that. I really do. There are many people who took the vaccine because of a belief that this was right and this was good for our neighbours. Fine. I totally acknowledge that. But, you know, it's important that that doesn't make any one of us self-righteous. You know, it's easy for the one who has the laptop job and who has got the vaccine to become self-righteous and say, well, you know, they're less affected. Or it's easy for the person without that niggle in the conscience not to respect the niggle in the conscience of the other person. And I do think in the spirit of Romans 14, you've got to do that. You can't impose this on, the pe- on other people. You've got to respect the conscience and, not, and let them stand before God. Let yourself stand before God for the decision you've made. It's easy to think ill of people, but it doesn't make this principle right. And surely we can agree that the principle is too much. The principle itself is wrong. We are breaking all the rules, by the way. Free and informed consent to medical treatment, just breaking the rules. Freedom of movement, it's supposed to be guaranteed, we're breaking the rules. Freedom of conscience, even in emergency, Article 18, International Covenant, Civil and Political Rights, status, state of emergency, doesn't matter, conscience still matters, we're breaking the rules. Uh, equality before the law, rule of law, uh, segregation, breaking the rules. We're breaking all the rules. And they've been written down time and again to warn us, to remind us not to break them because don't go good places. Again, it clearly isn't right. And I say this not because I'm an anti-vaxxer. I am not, but because I am pro-conscience. I am pro-work. I am in favour of equality before all of the law, and I'm very concerned about authoritarian responses. I say it because the threat posed by Omicron is very small to all of us, unless you are incredibly vulnerable, in which case you're incredibly vulnerable anyway, and you have taken precautions and you take precautions, okay? I say it because the burden of these mandates is very, very high when the threat posed by Omicron is very small, and because there are other ways to achieve the same or better health outcomes. There is no sense of proportion here at all. And we're breaking all the rules. Mr. Morrison, state premiers, if any of you watch this, I don't know, but it's way past time to tear down these mandates. Now, I want to make just a reflection on uh, the pandemic from a biblical perspective, uh, from a Christian point of view, before closing this topic. I've done this a few times and you go and find my other sections on this, but this is just a unique thought that I've been having of late and it relates to fear. The reason governments have been able to go beyond reasonable health measures or or continue to go beyond what has become clear as an unreasonable health measure um, uh, is a kind of crisis into this crisis authoritarianism, as I've called it before, is because people are continuing in fear. People are quite afraid. And I'm conscious many people watching this are probably still thinking I'm crazy because they have an overblown sense of the crisis. Governments have, in some cases, done this on purpose to ensure compliance. I think of Andrew's government, McGowan government being among the worst, the Canadian government right now being among the worst. There are others, of course. Um, It is is a political motive, and I referred to that. It's not so much a healthcare motive, but I want to make this point, and I've reflected on this. Christians ought to be 
the most fear-resistant citizens in the world. Let me make a few points to show this. One, the most frequent negative prohibition of Jesus, the most frequent prohibition that Jesus gives in the Gospels is fear not or do not be afraid. Okay, he says it all the time. Now, we must say it for a reason. In other words, it's a problem. But he also says it for a reason. In other words, it's really important. Secondly, Hebrews 2 actually tells us that the human condition is to be in slavery due to fear of death. And my goodness, haven't we seen that over the last two years? People enslave themselves by their fear of death and they even come under slavery. You are released from that in Christ. It's what the Apostle Paul would say, something like to die is gain, which is madness to some people. But there you go. He said it. And it's challenging to me. Or you can look at something like Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry, he says, don't be anxious. And the kind of worry and anxiety that he prohibits or says you shouldn't have is that which pertains to tomorrow, that thing which is in God's hands, what comes next down the road, which you actually ultimately can't control. Here's the thing. We read all of this from Scripture and from the words of Jesus But the world is a fearful place. And again, we've seen that in the last two years. It's become very clear. And I often think to myself, you know what? If it was all up to me, if this world was just a machine of some kind that was kind of random, kind of programmed, going somewhere I don't know, come from somewhere I don't know, and it's all up to me to live my life and to defend myself and make my own way and all this kind of stuff, if it was just me having to figure it all out, with the chance and the randomness and the uncertainty, yeah, I'd probably be fearful too, somewhere deep down in my soul. You know, something that's been called angst by people smarter than me, this human condition of fearfulness, based on that sense that, well, I'm from where going where, untethered from anything, and it's all up to me. It's interesting, St. Augustine, I think, addressed this when he said, actually, there is a solution, ultimately. He says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There is a solution to angst. And it sounds simplistic to say, oh, well, Jesus solves it. No, but it's not simplistic because it's not just Jesus, but it's something more specific. The solution to fear is held up so many times when Jesus talks about it as faith. Matthew 6, when he says, don't worry about tomorrow, he says, you have little faith. He says, that's the problem. You've got little faith. That's why you're afraid. Or indeed, he often said the phrase, why do you fear or why do you doubt or why, do you, why are you afraid? You of little faith, he says. And Revelation actually says those who are cast into judgment, the first category, it's not the murderers, it's not the thieves, it's not the immoral, it's the fearful, the faithless. Faith solves our fears. How? Because it actually unites us to the one who is really in control and in charge and has our interests at heart. There is an anchor point in the universe. It's not random. It's not chance. It's not all up to me. Actually, there's someone who holds tomorrow in his hand. Actually, there is somebody uh, who says that all things work according to the counsel of his own will in Ephesians 1. And what what is his will? It is good. It is wise. There is unbelievable confidence. There is one who holds my life in his hand. He knows when I'll die and he'll take it from me. And that's in his hands. That's his business. And I know who he is. Suddenly, faith in God, it is the faith that we have and a measure of the faith that we have, whether or not we fear. It's hugely challenging, you know, hugely challenging. There is something certain, something sure, something good. And by faith in God, who it is, I can hold fast to him, know him 
and have that peace. And to conclude, let me quote Jesus in John 14. He says, as he's going away and leaving his disciples, he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. There it is. He says it again. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Next statement, believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, that's the answer. Faith in God. And then he says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. There is a peace that comes from out of this world. Faith in Christ. That's not just some uh, simplistic thing to say, but it's very, very profound. It's the answer actually to the human condition who is estranged from God and fearful and can be united to God and know peace. So I say to you all, and I say to myself, one of the great lessons out of this pandemic, do not be afraid. I'm Martin Niles. That was the first for the season. That was the truth of it.